Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests, and we have a full house here today on Realty Speak. First, we'll speak with Susan May McLean, owner, and Sherry Zarrett, partner of the title company Horizon Land Services. Then we'll check in with Mario Land, in-house counsel for Horizon, and Vincent Bellardi, attorney with the New York City branch of the law firm Morit, Hawk, and Hamroff. Roll call. Susan? I'm here. Sherry? Here. Mario? Hey, Bill. Vincent? Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak. Susan, Sherry, Horizon's been around for 21 years, and you have each been partners in the firm for how long? Um, I opened up the company 21 years ago, and Sherry joined me 15 years ago. Please share with our listeners the story of Horizon and what part does Horizon play in the real estate transaction? I started the company with my former partners, Mindy Simon and Fern Epstein, 21 years ago. It was a comedy of errors, kind of, that brought us together. It was approximately six months before we realized that we had a great business model. And we now do commercial and residential nationwide, non-performing nationwide. We were able to construct a brilliant team and attract uh, some of the best title insurance people out there. Sherry, why did you come to work for me? I had an extensive background in title insurance and selling real estate and had moved out of New York for a few years. And I moved back, I researched many title insurance companies. Horizon was exactly what I was looking for. A women-owned company that had a very strong background in commercial as well as residential. Susan, you have anything to add to that? I was doing interviews because I was looking to expand. Um, Sherry's very like-minded and fit with me, and we hit it off immediately. I, I think it was the entire... She missed the plane to go back home. She mm -hmm. was living in Colorado at the time. The moment Sherry walked in my office, we had an immediate connection. I knew she was the one I needed to align myself with so I could grow the company. And uh, I, we moved her here, and uh, it, it's been uh, a fun, entertaining run for uh, 15 years. I came in for a quick interview and ended up speaking for about three hours because uh, we, as Susan said, very, very like-minded. I didn't want to work with an underwriter that was too big and lose the personal touch with our clients. I wanted to work with a boutique company that got to know their clients really well, so we knew who to introduce them to and how to bring business to them. One of the other things that attracted me to Horizon was that Susan and Mary were both very hands-on with all the clients and each transaction. Each client, I feel, even though they all do the same thing, need a different type of attention to their matters. I came in as a salesperson, and then Susan and I partnered up very quickly because we realized we worked together with the commercial sect of our industry. You know, when you're married to somebody for so long and you could just tell what's going on from across the room, we've had that going on from the beginning. So you finish each other's sentences. We do. We do. <laughs> and I have to say, Susan, that you managed to have Sherry give up living in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And Sherry, why did you live in Colorado? I landed there by accident, but I did fall in love with it. I love the mountains, but I miss the city. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I have a similar story. I lived in Utah for five years, and seven years ago, I moved back to New York. And I love the city, but I still do miss the mountains. Yeah. I, miss the, I like them both equally, but coming back and finding the right fit 
um, for a position was obviously key and it, it just, it just worked. And here we are 15 years later and, um, we even look alike. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we get started with, uh, Vincent and Mario, tell our listeners a little bit about the difference between a title agency, which I believe you are correct. And the actual underwriter insurer. So, for example, if you go to an agent or to an underwriter, the difference is if you go to an underwriter, that's the only choice you have. Uh, If you go to an agent, we have multiple underwriters and people don't realize it, but we will need to change an underwriter at a closing for different reasons to help accommodate our client right at the table. If you're going direct, you really don't have that option and the closing can get adjourned a very, very big difference. Having multiple underwriters, we know that the strength of the back offices of all the different underwriters, which helps us choose at times which underwriter to go to in case there ever is any kind of a conflict. For us, we also know when we look at a property and we can see what it is, if it's a commercial transaction, if it's a residential transaction, if it's an assemblage construction loan, we can also choose the underwriter if we're permitted to that has the right back office in case there ever is a problem. So we know how all the back offices work and we can say this has a potential issue with this, that or the other. So let's put it through First American because we know how they deal with these issues. So there's a lot of thought that goes into which underwriter we're giving it to. Besides that, a lot of times the client dictates and they say, you know, I want you to use First American or I want you to use Amtrust and they could have their own reasoning. So they dictate that to us, we would, shoot, of course, do what they like, but most of the time we have the choice. All right, great. Well, thanks for that explanation. I didn't even realize that. And I think, yeah. And it's a question I'm, we get us <laughs> And I think, that, I think there's a lot of people that don't realize that, that, mm-hmm. that it really does make sense to go with an agency that has a choice of underwriters. Yeah, something can come up at the closing and, you know, the closing could get blown. Um, and, there have, and it happens a lot. I, I'd say I think it probably happens at least once a month. At least. And it happens on residential as much as it happens on commercial. Wow. Wow. All right. Great. Well, thanks for sharing. Thank you both for introducing yourselves and giving us a little background on the company itself and your partnership with each other. And we're going to switch over now to Vincent and Mario. And I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about the two of them. So, Mario, you are in-house counsel to Horizon Land Services and a 20-year veteran of the title insurance industry with a broad experience and perspective at both the underwriter and agency levels. Prior to Horizon, you served as counsel at First American Title Insurance Company and joined Horizon Land Services as in-house counsel in November of 2002. During your long career, you have cleared files covering complex multi-million dollar commercial transactions involving in-state as well as out-of-state purchasers, sellers, and their legal representatives. You also prepared educational presentations on a wide array of industry topics. You received your BA from Hunter College, an MA in government from New York University, and your JD from New York University School of Law. Vincent, as counsel to the law firm of Morit, Hawk, and Hamroff, you focus on your clients' real estate matters, including the purchase and sale of commercial and residential real estate, commercial leasing, and subleasing all types of loan financing, and Section 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. 
You received your BA in English degree at Fordham University, magna cum laude, and your law degree at Fordham University School of Law. You are a member of the Association of the Bar of the City of New York and the New York State Bar Association. I really look forward, and I'm sure the listeners are really looking forward to all the intel you will share with us today around the pre-closing, closing, and post-closing process of the transfer of ownership in investment real estate. So let's get started. Vincent, share with us the lead up to a transaction. Each transaction is unique in and of itself. You need to find out the particulars of of a property from your client. What is the type of commercial property? Is it industrial? Is it commercial? Is it mixed use? By mixed use, I mean it's a combination of both residential and commercial use. If I'm representing the purchaser of this commercial property, typically in the boilerplate of the contract, it provides for a due diligence period, typically 45 days from the date of the contract, where the purchaser can investigate certain aspects of the property, structural, environmental for a phase one evaluation. And sometimes if it involves residential property, especially rent regulated property, you want to get a report showing a regulated rents to make sure that the registration statements have been filed. When you enter into the contract, there's typically a 5% down payment based on the purchase price upfront. After the 45-day due diligence period, a subsequent 5% deposit is made and the contract will go for about another 30 to 60 days, depending upon if the purchaser is going to be seeking financing. When a bank's involved, it takes a little longer. And during that time, you will order title and be dealing with people like Mario to uh, ensure good and marketable title to the property. So for commercial property, you're looking at anywhere from 45 days to 75 to 90 days between contract signing to closing. What actually complicates transactions like this and has them take longer than that? Depending upon the due diligence review, you might find that there is a structural problem with the property or a phase one environmental may disclose that there may be something else in the soil or the building that requires a phase two. Or there may be some missing registration filings if you're doing an HPD search to make sure that that you have registered the rents for the property within the past four years. Or once the title comes through, there could be a lien, a federal tax lien, environmental control board lien, some problem in the chain of title, say, for example, an old mortgage that wasn't satisfied or a transfer for no consideration that needs to be investigated or a transfer from an estate for which there is a problem in terms of proof of payment of estate tax, which could be a, an intervening lien. There, there are a panoply of things that could go that could crop up that you would have to deal with, which may delay a closing, including dealing with the bank's underwriters. So when this happens, you said, you know, the first phase is usually 45 days, they put down 5%, and then after that, they put down another 5%. Uh, if some of this stuff comes up in due diligence in the first 45 days, is the purchaser's deposit at risk? Or, you know, now if they need more time to clear all this stuff up, what happens? A purchaser's deposit is not at risk during the first 45 days. I want to point out that the boilerplate form of contract does not provide for criteria for the cancellation of the contract by the purchaser. If I'm representing the seller, I don't want to give the purchaser, say, a naked option where you have 45 days to decide whether or not you want to buy this property. No. 
I'm going to give you 45 days to do these specific searches, structural engineering search, phase one environmental. And say, for example, the structural engineering search discloses that there are material structural problems with the property that the buyer was unaware of until this came out and is now not worth the money he was willing to pay. The buyer has an opportunity to cancel the contract and get the 5% or however much you negotiate initial deposit down. The seller may at that point desire to say, well, wait a minute, don't please don't go away. Let's try and work this out. And if you have a willing buyer and a willing seller, something maybe could, could be worked out. Otherwise, the buyer can take his due diligence period, exercise his right as specified in the contract. And of, and of course, the contract language is very, very important. And say, have a nice day and walk away with his down payment without it being at risk. And why don't sellers do a lot of this stuff up front themselves so that this way they're preparing the property for sale and they kind of know in advance whether or not there's going to be an issue? Well, a prepared seller usually would. They would take a look at their property. It would be priced appropriately if there are issues or they take measures to make sure that any issues will be resolved. A lot of times, People just are not aware of, say, issues with title. They were, Gee, I thought I paid off that mortgage or satisfied that lien in the past. I'm surprised, you know, as in Casablanca, I'm shocked, shocked that this is still in place. And that's when we would have to deal with it. Most sellers do try to clean things up or that their attorneys do prior to putting the place on, on the market and entering into a contract. Vincent, when you're representing a buyer mm -hmm. and they come to you and they say, I'm buying this, it's just myself, or I may have one close partner, you know, we're going to be equal partners. What do you recommend they do in terms of the entity under which they buy the property? Should they buy it together in their, both their names or should they create some kind of corporate entity? I would not recommend that people buy properties, especially investment and in, in commercial properties in their individual names, because if something goes wrong, if there's a slip and fall, if there's other sorts of liability, then they will be personally liable. So that's their homes, their 401ks, their, their investments, everything. You want to take it in the form of an entity. The best entity is an LLC, a limited liability company. So you could either be individual members or you could take it in the form of a trust as a member of the LLC, but the overall ownership is an LLC. You don't want to do, say, a C corporation. That's probably the worst type of, uh, aside from personal ownership. A C corporation, when you, uh, if you take title in the form of a C corporation as the fee owner, when you sell, you're going to be hit with double taxation at the corporate level and then on the shareholder level. An S corporation, which has a bit better tax benefit because of the flow through tax effect has other issues because you're limited in terms of the type of shareholder and number of shareholders. So if I'm advising a client in terms of the proper form of ownership of a piece of real estate, I would recommend a limited liability company. How about when someone is acting as a general partner and they have some other limited partners that are coming in to buy this with them, but the general partner is pretty much going to administrate the property over the expected life of ownership. Does that complicate the transaction? Do all these people have to be present at the closing? How does that work? 
No, it wouldn't. In terms of a uh, what you're talking about is a limited partnership where you have a general partner and say sort of like silent investors is the limited partners. The general partner, I would recommend being an entity. You know, it could be you know Jane Doe going to be running calling the shots as president of Jane Doe Incorporated, who's the corporate general partner. All the uh, investors, so to speak, who is not who are not going to have a say in the management and control of the property, they're basically there to reap the benefits of any income or gain thrown off by the property. And at a closing, it's going to be the general partner who is authorized to sign. Limited partners do not have authority or the power to to bind the limited partnership. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the due diligence period, and we've talked about the deposit being protected depending on the language in the contract for the first 45 days. And then after the first 45 days, I guess the purchaser would waive the right to cancel the contract because they've done their due diligence and they make a statement that they're satisfied with the findings. After the expiration of the due diligence period, whether it's 30 days, whether it's 45 days, because 45 days is not a hard and fast rule. It's whatever you can negotiate. But after that period ends, you still have a period of time where after you put the second down payment down, or the second deposit, I should say, uh, that you get your title. And if the seller is unable to convey title, good and marketable title, in accordance with the terms of the contract, the buyer has another opportunity if the seller can't comply, and if depending upon the terms of the contract, to cancel the contract and get back his or her down payment. But that would be the only reason because they've already said that the findings of the initial due diligence period. Right. That that period is run. So if they fail to, and usually in the contract, especially when you're representing the seller, you make the, the due diligence period, whether it's 30 or 45 days or whatever, be time of the essence, meaning that if the buyer or the buyer's counsel fails to make a valid objection based on the due diligence period by the end of the due diligence period, then it's deemed to have been waived or satisfied. So if you have something to say, you better speak up. Speak up or forever hold your peace. Right, because uh, the seller is going to be forever holding your deposit. At least for that portion until uh, the second uh, period ends. So at this point, Vincent, we have gone past the original due diligence period. We have now gone into the title period, which Mario is going to talk about in a minute. And we're also going to start going for our financing, if financing is required on this transaction. Uh, what What's the risk now for the seller and the buyer around the buyer getting financing? Typically in a commercial transaction, the deal is not contingent upon the purchaser securing financing. Obviously, contracts are different, situations are different. You could negotiate a contingency, but typically in commercial transactions, the buyer's ability to obtain financing or not, the contract is not contingent on that. So if you are in a situation where the buyer has entered into a contract to purchase commercial real estate, and uh, as is the usual situation, the contract is not contingent on the purchaser obtaining financing, then the buyer's down payment is at risk should that financing fail to materialize and the buyer has no other resource for funding to consummate the transaction. 
So when the real world has this happen now and then where you've represented a buyer or a seller and the seller wanted to keep the buyer's down payment or you're representing the buyer and the buyer wasn't able to keep their down payment, what what happens at that point? Do people try to negotiate or is it just uh, cut and dry? It's never cut and dry. There's always negotiation involved. I, in fact, was involved in a situation where uh, the commitment letter was issued and we were actually at the closing table. And then for some unexplained reason, the bank decided that it was not going to fund the loan. Now, the buyer is left shorthanded. The seller has the right to the down payment per the contract, but the buyer is not going to let go of their down payment willingly. You know, there's usually a fight or a negotiation over, you know, taking something back depending upon culpability fault. While the seller has a right to the down payment per the contract, there's usually a negotiation uh, unless there's some extreme situation otherwise. So what happened in that case? What happened in that case was uh, we adjourned the closing. The seller was willing to wait a little bit. The buyer had some alternatives that he was able to to get in terms of bridge financing. He was going to be paying a, a premium on the interest rate he was going to be paying, but he wanted the property. The seller was motivated to sell. So we adjourned for about 30 days and we came back and, and, the, and the sale was consummated. Oh, that's great. That's a, that's a nice ending to a story that could have went completely in the wrong direction. It could have gone bad real quick. Yes. I would imagine that in your career, you've had experiences where the seller wasn't so generous and uh, just walked away with the deposit. Absolutely. There was one situation where for the purchase of a building, it was a multifamily. I was representing the buyer. So the buyer had some difficulty in terms of meeting the targeted closing date. And I just want to mention something really quickly uh, that uh, of the targeted closing date in the contract. Either side, either seller or purchaser, has a right of reasonable adjournment. So even though the contract says that the closing date's going to be on or about November 1st, Either side, you know, for good reason, has a reasonable right of adjournment, usually 30 days or so. We ran into a problem uh, where the closing was actually scheduled. Something came up in between. I had to ask for a last minute adjournment. The seller's attorney was not having anything of it. He was trying to force us to close on that particular date. Again, it was not time of the essence. We had a right of adjournment. The seller's attorney was too ambitious and tried to put us into default. And in fact, sent us a letter saying, you're in default, you didn't close on, say, November 1st, I'm keeping you down payment, have a nice day. We turned around and said, well, guess what? We have a reasonable right of adjournment. You canceled the contract without good reason. You're an anticipatory breach. Now we want out, and we want our down payment back. It actually went to court, and we won because the seller's attorney was too anxious to try and put us into breach when we weren't really breaching. So I guess the moral of that story is, is that people should not be so ambitious, you know, from a dollar point of view and really think about, you know, who's in the transaction and what can we do, you know, to make this work and uh, how can everybody end up with the outcome that they originally wanted, which is a buyer purchasing investment real estate and the seller receiving their profit for doing so. Right. The circumstances of each situation is going to dictate how people should act. If it's a non-time of the essence deal, then each side has a a reasonable right of adjournment. Things happen. If it is a time of the essence transaction and someone's in a breach of that, then the the non-breaching party is in a better situation, obviously. 
Well, Vincent, thank you very much for that. And Mario, we thank you for being patient. And we are at the point where title is being ordered while we're also going for financing. So Mario, at this point, what's happening on your side? Well, to allude to what uh, Vincent said uh, earlier, when we order title at that point, what we need is a history of the property. We need a history from the beginning of time to date, because it is somewhat incredible that many property owners do not know how they hold title. They do not know the lien history. They do not know if there are breaks in the chain of title. They do not know if there are any unpaid mortgages or liens that go back over the history of their ownership. So a title report is basically a historical analysis of that property. And it goes, it goes back quite a ways. In fact, when we look at things like covenants and restrictions and easements, we go back to the beginning of time, the beginning of recorded land records in the United States. So it is not unusual that we might go back to the first conveyance out of the crown in England to a particular governor in colonial America, and then moving forward through the 1800s during the Civil War, post-Civil War, back into the 20th century and to date. We will turn out any covenants, any restrictions, any easements of record, no matter how far back it is in the land records. Mario, please tell our listeners what a covenant and restriction is and an easement. A covenant and restriction is something that was agreed to by parties that own the property at some point. Usually, it could have been adjoining property owners. It could have been in the form of a declaration by a single developer. It could be something that was imposed by the municipality. And it is a desire that is to run with the land. And what that means is that it has to be enforced through the developing chain of title and through the passage of years. Let's look at a classic example. A lot of developers or a lot of adjoining owners do not want their property to be used for things that might be considered noxious or polluting uses. So there are a lot of covenant restrictions which prohibit a particular piece of parcel from being used to produce gunpowder or metal products. They don't want the, the property to be used for the distribution of liquor or other vices. They, they will prohibit the practice of gambling on the property. So at some point, some owner or some developer imposed that on all of their heirs and assigns, which means that no one in the chain of title going forward can use that parcel of land for the prohibited use. Is there a way to remove that restriction? There, there is a way that it can be removed, and there might be a way that it can be ignored. I would like to, first of all, say that there are certain covenants and restrictions that are null and void by operation of law. And this is a little bit of a controversial subject, but, but I, you have to say it because we run into this all the time. There are many covenants and restrictions that concern racial and discriminatory conditions. There are pieces of property that prohibit the sale of the property to individuals of a certain ethnic group or certain religious group. Those are of record and we have to turn them out. Of course, they are all null and void because of the passage of the 1964 and 1965 Civil Rights Acts in the United States, uh, but they are there. So those are null and void. But aside from that, 
it's possible that a covenant and restriction might be ignored or can be given affirmative insurance over in a title report because the nature of the surrounding property has changed. Let's take an example. You have a parcel of land and it has a restriction which prohibits the land and the surrounding areas from being used for commercial usage. It's limited to residential one to two family houses. And that restriction was put on record in 1872 in the aftermath of the Civil War. Now you are in 2018 and you go to that property and every building in the area is used for commercial purposes. And now you're insuring one parcel in the middle of all those commercial buildings. Is this a restriction that could be rationally enforced by anybody? Could any of the surrounding owners bring an action to prohibit your insured from putting up a factory when they themselves have similar restrictions in their deed chains and yet the area is full of commercial usage and everyone else, every surrounding neighbor is using their parcels of land for commercial purposes. It is a restriction that is no longer relevant because the character of the neighborhood, of the surrounding areas has changed and changed dramatically. Is the title insurance actually covering the new purchaser so that if someone did bring in action and actually won, they would be reimbursed by the title insurance company? That would only be the case if we gave affirmative insurance. And in a case like that where somebody was going to buy that parcel of land in order to develop it for commercial purposes, it is quite likely that they would request from us affirmative insurance in their owner's policy, something to the effect that covenant and restriction from 1872 uh, would not be enforced against a current owner um, who violated it. And we could give, we could come up with some sort of language that would satisfy that proposed purchaser. And the basis for that would be our analysis that the reality of that land is different now, the surrounding area is different, the nature and the characteristics of the neighbors are different, and it's no longer enforceable by anybody. What about easements? Easements present a very interesting dilemma for us. It is very difficult for a title person to know exactly whether an easement has been violated, except in conjunction with a surveyor. And as we go on in speaking about title and its impact on real estate transactions, I want to discuss briefly the role of the surveyor because I think it's fundamental. When you have an easement, you have someone who has a right to go onto or over the property being insured. And that easement is formally set forth in an agreement of record. Usually it can be a standalone easement document or it can be included in a deed or it can be included together with a covenant and restriction. One of the things that any prospective purchaser or lender for that matter would want to know is whether that easement has been violated. And how would it be violated? It would be violated if somebody has built on that easement blocking the access. It would be violated if it's in disrepair, whereas the original easement called for a road to be there. It could be all sorts of improvements. People have built garages or other structures on the easement. 
And in order to plot that easement, you have to work very closely with the surveyor and a, and a good surveyor at that who will actually plot out in a survey the dimensions of that easement and show us the title company, show the purchaser, show the lender, as well as the seller for that matter, whether in fact that easement can actually be used without any blockage or any encumbrances. I guess an example of that could be a block that has an alley behind it, and that alley may go through the adjoining properties and actually be part of those adjoining properties, but it's an easement to go from one place to another. Absolutely. In Brooklyn and in, I think, in parts of the Bronx, those are not uncommon. And in certain cases, they are to provide automobile access through the rear of the uh, of the buildings, or even just pedestrian traffic. I mean, people just have historically used those as a shortcut to get from one street to another. And it is quite possible that some landowner along the way decided to build on those easement areas. Um, and no one at that time complained or, or commenced an action to prevent her from doing that but it is now an issue and only a survey um, will be able to reveal that. So what happens in the case where say you have a uh, you know 10 family building somewhere in Brooklyn and there's an alley behind it and somebody put an extension on the on the building and they built on that easement and you now discover this because you see the easement in the title search that you do and you inform everybody that's part of the transaction that there's this structure that is an appendage of the existing building that's built on this easement. What happens in a case like that? Do you have an example of that? Yes, we've seen that many, many times in different contexts. But first of all, our job is to raise the issue and put everybody on notice. Now, the next step is somebody will want us to insure over it. And by insure over it, they want some affirmative insurance. So it's similar to the situation with the covenant and restriction. They want the title company to basically assure the world or everyone connected with that transaction that it is not going to be a problem. It is not going to be an issue. And, and part of our analysis has to do, again, you sort of have to look at the history. That encroachment, and that's what we call it, we call it an encroachment onto the easement area. Is it a recent development? Was it put up three months ago by the current owner? Or was it put up by a prior owner 55 years ago? Those are two very different scenarios. It's possible that if it happened a long time ago, 55 years ago, for example, the easement just fell into disuse. No one uses it. No one depends on it. And the improvement on it just became a reality with which the community lived. If it's something that happened three months ago and you have people that have been using that easement area as a shortcut, it's quite likely that somebody will raise a problem. And if we somehow have affirmatively insured over that easement encroachment, we will be on the hook, meaning we will be liable if somebody commences an action because we will be duty bound to defend our insured. And isn't it something that it's not in writing and recorded, but it's just something that's been happening over a long period of time? That's sort of an appendage to the better known doctrine of adverse possession. Let's talk about what adverse possession is. Adverse possession is an adjoining landowner has taken possession through usage of a particular parcel of land that they do not own. There's no deed for that piece of land. 
There's no conveyance to them. But yet, over a period of time, they have utilized that land in some way. They could have built on it. They could have improved it in some way. And after a certain amount of time, usually the statutory period is 10 years, they could go to a court and claim adverse possession and be declared by a court the rightful owner of that land. This doctrine is based on the notion that landowners have to be aware of what is happening with their property. You cannot just sit back and let your real property be used by squatters, by adjoining owners, and not expect to lose that. So if something like this happened and it was over 10 years and the purchaser decides to get a survey and the survey reveals that something from an adjacent landowner is encroaching on their property, this could be an example of that adverse possession. What would happen in a transaction like that? And Vincent, maybe you want to chime in on this as well, if you had an example of something like this. For adverse possession, you know, Mario was correct. You know, the statutory time is 10 years. The use by the, let's call it the offending landowner has to be open and hostile, but under a colorable right, right, Mario? Correct. And usually where it comes up in a title report, say with the survey, most of the time, uh, the, the most common time is if there is a, say, like a fence and the title company will raise an out of possession issue because you have this fence that's like say five feet in from the property line that goes the entire contiguous fence, no gates, no holds. And then the title, basically what the title company doing, Mario could speak to this, will say, well, we're going to ensure good and marketable title, except for this issue, which we are raising for this out of possession. Absolutely. And one way to resolve the issue is for the owner of the land that is impacted by the possible out-of-possession. And we always say possible out-of-possession because until a court has determined that the adverse possession is in fact adverse possession, that person has not been declared the owner by anyone. One of the ways to resolve this is for the owner to reach out to their neighbors and and show them the survey, show them the issue, and have them sign a boundary line agreement. And what a boundary line agreement essentially is is an agreement between adjoining landowners setting forth the record line between the two properties. And the the landowner who is encroaching onto us will essentially say, I recognize the encroachment, but I am not claiming ownership to the land that is impacted by the encroachment. And this document can be recorded in the land records, just like a deed or a mortgage. And Forevermore, anyone who does a title search will turn that agreement out. So it sounds like sometimes the title search can get very, very complicated. It's not cut and dry, and it takes a lot of time to put all this together and make sure that everything is uh, correct. Absolutely. All right. And I guess the last thing I want to talk about in terms of items that may encumber the existing parcel of land, of real estate, let's talk about judgments, liens, notices of pendency, and priority of liens. And also a little bit about leases and subordination. The most basic uh, lien against the property is a monetary judgment that some individual or entity has obtained against either the real property or the owner of our land. And what happens is it's a a two-step process. Somebody obtains a judgment 
And the underlying action of that judgment can be many things. It can be completely unrelated to the land. But once they've obtained that judgment and they take the additional step of filing it in the county clerk's office where the land is located, it becomes a lien on a piece of land. It attaches. It can be foreclosed. It can be enforced against the land. And it is that second step which is crucial in creating a lien. It can be monetary judgment. It could be a federal lien for unpaid income tax. It can be a real property tax lien where the landowner has not properly paid their real estate taxes over a period of time and a lien is then filed. The resulting of all these judgments is that an action can be commenced to foreclose on the property or to enforce the lien. And usually any dispute, any litigation with regards to the ownership of a particular piece of land leads to the filing of a notice of pendency. A notice of pendency is simply a filed document that tells the world, it provides constructive notice by being filed in the land records, that there is litigation that disputes the ownership of the land. And this is notice that will be revealed to a prospective purchaser, a prospective lender, anyone who has an interest in the property. And by filing it in the, in the county clerk's office in the county where the property is located, it provides constructive notice of this matter. These are some of the major impediments to a closing. They have to be resolved in order for the owner or the lender to get clean title. So in the case of, say, a New York City tax lien, where the owner hasn't paid the real estate taxes for a period of time, and I understand what happens is the city makes them after this period of time eligible for a lien on the property. Does the city actually file a lien in the recorder's office? They do. And then I understand they sell these liens to two specific agencies that are basically collection agencies, and those agencies can actually bring a foreclosure proceeding on the property, can't they? Absolutely true. It's a foreclosure in the same way that a mortgage is foreclosed, with the additional benefit that the underlying lien is what we call colloquially in the title industry a super lien. And the reason for that, and this goes, uh, Bill, to your other question as to priority. Traditionally, when we talk about judgments and liens, we have to talk about the priorities between them, between a certain judgment and a certain mortgage. And everything else being equal, first in time wins. If I have a judgment against a particular owner and I file mine in 2017 and you have a second judgment and you file yours in 2018, I win. I came first. My judgment, my mortgage trumps yours because of the priority issue. That is not the case with a real estate tax lien. A real estate tax lien is what we consider a super lien. It can trump any lien or judgment or mortgage no matter how old and how long it has been of record. It has the ability, it's a public policy objective to get people to pay their taxes because it can wipe out every other interest in the parcel of land. But the secondary lien holders, whatever order that they're in, if they want to, they can satisfy that tax lien to protect their own interest in the property. Is that right? So for for instance, the mortgage holder, the mortgagee. Absolutely. And you will often see a foreclosing lender on a mortgage 
pay off open real estate tax liens. It's in their interest to keep that property from being foreclosed by the municipality. Uh, what about a tax lien for federal income tax or state income tax? How does that fall in the priority? Those do not have super lien status. They have the same priority according to other judgments, and it depends on what the chronology of filing is. So in order to close on that property, though, in order for the seller to close on that property, they still have to satisfy any liens or judgments that are recorded on a property. So if they had a federal tax lien or a state income tax lien, and let's say they didn't have enough equity to pay them off, they could negotiate with those entities and still maybe sell the property and then be on a payment program for the balance or something like that. Absolutely. We have seen many, many times where a federal there's a federal tax lien against an individual for a certain amount. And when we get the payoff letter for said interest, it is a much lower amount. Homeowners, property owners can get greatly discounted payoff amounts when they negotiate with the IRS or with the state taxing authorities. And what about leases and subordination? Leases in the commercial context, present an interesting dilemma for us. Remember what we do when we issue a policy. We are stating that a particular purchaser is taking free and clear of everything except for items that we list in our title report and in our policies. Leases present an issue both in the residential and the commercial context for the following reason, especially when we're insuring lenders. Remember, we issue almost as many lenders' policies as we issue owners' policies, sometimes more. Most leases at the residential level are self-subordinating, meaning that the tenant in their lease will have a clause which says that their lease is subject and subordinate to any financing by the record owner. And that's because record owners don't want to have to run to their tenant every time they go out and get financing. They want that to be subordinate so that the lender will know that lease is subordinate. In the commercial context, that's not always the case. Many leases are not self-subordinating to financing by the record owner. In order for the, for the lender to feel comfortable in lending to a record owner, they sometimes enter into a very interesting agreement, which is called a subordination, non-disturbance, and atonement agreement, or SNDA for short. And it's a tripartite agreement between the lender, the record owner, and the commercial tenant. And it essentially says that the lease is being subordinated to the new mortgage that's about to be executed and recorded. But in exchange for that, the lender will let the tenant remain in place. And the tenant will recognize the foreclosing owner at its as its new landlord. And that works very well because it satisfied the lender that they had priority over everything, including a tenant of record, but it gives the tenant, the commercial tenant, a certain comfort level that in the case of a foreclosure, they're not going to be kicked out and their lease is not going to be terminated. So it's a very sort of elegant if I want to jump in here just for a second, because um, in in my experience in dealing with commercial real estate in New York City, most good commercial landlord attorneys will have that language in the lease that basically says 
that this lease I'm entering into with this tenant is subordinate to any existing or future mortgage. And and that's self-operative. And I just want to clarify to our listeners, when we use the word commercial, we're talking about a shopping center or an industrial building. And when we use the word residential, we're talking about a multifamily. Multifamily, single family, whatever it is. Commercial also could be an office building. Right. Office building. Office building. Retail too. So depending upon the tenant, if you have a big anchor tenant, they're the 800-pound gorilla, and they could require you to say, well, hold on. Yes, this will be subordinate to any future mortgage, provided we get that subordination, non-disturbance, and attornment agreement, and they have the weight to, to force a landlord to ask its bank for that, and the bank will be willing to give it because this is a valuable tenant. It's not a shoeshine uh, shop, you know, in there, and the shoeshine shops would not be able to get it. So uh, most of the time in commercial settings, landlords will have that, you know, you're going to be subordinate no matter what, depending upon the tenant, depending upon how much space in the building the tenant is occupying, they may be successful in getting that subordination, non-disturbance, and attornment that Mario just described. Mario, was this anything else that you wanted to add around those particular points that we covered? The the only thing I would I would say is, and and again, this is sort of following up on what Vincent has has already talked about. When we prepare a title report, we usually come in when the transaction has already started, and I think it is important for certain issues like a survey, for example, to be tackled as early as possible. And the reason for that is because. It takes a long time in many cases, especially in commercial transactions, when you have large pieces of of land for a surveyor to get out there to do a proper job, especially if the client is requesting a very detailed survey where all the easements are plotted out, where all the improvements are carefully detailed, all the points of entry and exit, all the access. It takes a long time and it it can also be very, very costly. I would just advise people on on large transactions to get the survey process rolling as early as possible with a good, reputable surveyor. Mario, when you have a commercial transaction and you have a survey, an existing survey that was done, say, five years ago, would it be prudent for a borrower, if he's going to go for refinancing, to do a, for commercial setting, a survey redate, would that save time and money? And what would that redate entail? It completely depends on the location. I'll give you an example. And whenever I say this to audiences or to clients, they're astonished. It is not uncommon in Manhattan where you have many buildings that go back to Woodrow Wilson administration in World War I, it is not uncommon to have those insured with surveys that are over 100 years old. Surveys are read into title reports that were drafted by famous surveyors like George Hollerith. George Hollerith has been dead over 105 years, and yet we're using his survey, which has not been updated by a surveyor. It has simply been updated by an inspection done by a surveyor. And that means that they've gone out and eyeballed the property and noticed significant changes, but they're not out there with their surveying tools, measuring every inch. And the reason we can get away with this is because the building hasn't changed dramatically, especially down in Wall Street. And two, because the cost of a brand new survey is prohibitive. Once you get out of Manhattan, my advice has always been 
to get a brand new survey. Now, if everybody is familiar with the property, if there haven't been any significant changes, you can get away with a 5, 10, 15-year-old survey, which is simply redated by a visual examination as opposed to a resurvey. But if there have been any significant changes, if you know, if there's been a construction loan which has dramatically changed the facade of the property, the footprint, I would always say if you go with a simple visual examination, you're going to be missing a lot. But before we go to the closing, Vincent and Mario, there are some ways that the buyer and the seller may be able to save some money. And I know it comes as a big surprise sometimes to people, especially haven't had a transaction in a long time, especially in the city in New York. While it is something that exists in other states, not every state, it does exist in the city of New York, and that's mortgage tax and transfer tax. Mortgage tax being for the buyer who's doing financing and transfer tax being for the seller who's selling their interest in the property to the buyer. Uh, Would the two of you talk a little bit about that and how there are times when maybe that can be reduced, if at all? Sure. Absolutely. The the most common instrument that is recorded in a finance-related real estate transaction is a SEMA. And that stands for Consolidation, Extension, and Modification Agreement. Mortgage tax is, is a primary driving matter in most real estate transactions. And, in, and the reason for that is that in New York City, the mortgage tax on commercial property is 2.80%. When you tell that to, to people outside New York State, they are incredulous. It's almost 3% of the mortgage amount. Fortunately, there is a mechanism by which you can dramatically reduce that burden, and that is by getting the existing lender to assign its mortgage to the new lender. The statute recognizes that money, so-called old money, old principal outstanding amounts on existing mortgage on which presumably mortgage tax has already been paid at the time those mortgages were first executed, can be carried over when a new lender is in place. And so what typically happens is the existing mortgage is assigned off record from lender A to lender B. Lender B then puts in place a smaller mortgage, usually called a gap mortgage for some amount, And together, the two mortgages are consolidated by the so-called SEMA into a brand new lien in a specific amount. When you do that, you're only paying tax on the gap mortgage, on the so-called new money. You get an exemption on the mortgage tax that has already been paid on the old mortgages. And that can result in dramatic savings for many transactions. So if you were going for a $10 million mortgage and the seller already had a, say, $6 million mortgage, you would only be paying mortgage tax on the difference in $4 million. Correct. Right, which, let's see, uh, 3% of $6 million is $180,000. We're talking real money. Yeah, for sure. And what about the transfer tax for the seller, Vincent 
it's kind of hard for the seller to avoid transfer tax. There are certain exemptions based upon the transaction. One is if it's an outright gift or a no consideration transfer. I'm going to ask you a question and, and you know, I'm just trying to think out of the box here. So let's say, for instance, I gift my property to a trust. Okay. And now the trust owns the property. Is there a way that the trust can disposition the property without paying transfer tax? There's a couple of things there. Uh, and you can. If an individual is going to gift or a transfer for no consideration, some real estate into a trust, whether a revocable or irrevocable trust, you're limited to 15000 uh, currently $15,000 a year in terms of gifts to any individual. So if it's over that, which real property would be, then there's a gift tax return that's going to be filed, and that's going to go against their unified exemption long term. But that transfer from the individual to a trust, either revocable or irrevocable, will not be subject to transfer tax. The trust, depending upon whether it's a revocable or irrevocable trust, will either take the basis of the grantor in terms of a revocable trust, or in the case of an irrevocable trust, it will get a stepped-up basis, fair market value at the time of the transfer. Once that trust then tries to convey the property for consideration, then it will be subject to transfer tax. We're not even getting into the the area of gains tax, which you can defer by a 1031 exchange for commercial or investment property. Yeah, I was just thinking out of the box there. I guess there's really no way to get away with transfer tax if you're doing a traditional transaction. The only thing, and Mario, you could correct me here, but that I've seen in, in terms of structure is if you have an entity that's the seller or transferor, and the entity is owned by person one, person two, and person three, and it's transferring to an, another entity, which has, say, person two, but not person one and three, to the extent that there is some identity in the form of ownership, either total or partial, you may be able to get some relief on the transfer tax to the extent that there is a common beneficial owner, but you're not going to be able to avoid it entirely. If you have, I guess, a uh, an entity that's owned by husband and wife, say, and you're going to be transferring it to uh, the trust for the benefit of the husband and wife, you may be able to get away with something like that. It depends upon if there's consideration. If it's no consideration, there are there are elements involved. I would add that there is a way to reduce transfer tax, and it can be done so dramatically. But unfortunately, from a practitioner point of view, it's only available to one to three family properties. And that is the so-called continuing lien deduction. And essentially, it works like this. You have a seller and you have a buyer. And let's say the seller has a $1 million outstanding mortgage and the property is being sold for $2 million. That's the contract price. And the buyer agrees to take subject to that mortgage without modifying, underscore that, without modification in any way, shape or form to that mortgage. They cannot change that mortgage. They cannot add to that mortgage. They cannot subtract from that mortgage. They cannot change the interest rate. They're just taking subject to that mortgage. In that case, the transfer tax would be calculated not on the $2 million contract price, but on only $1 million. And that is the so-called continuing lien deduction. Both the city and the state give you a break by subtracting that outstanding lien from the overall consideration. And that dramatically increases... 
it's very rarely used for obvious reasons. One is because it's limited to residential properties. And two, because very few people are in a position to simply buy real property and take subject to existing mortgages without in some way changing the terms. Right, because haven't most mortgagees at this point written into their mortgages that transfer of title calls the mortgage due? And if there is any kind of an assumption clause in there, there will be a modification anyway? Correct. It's a very rare thing, but if you can do it, then the transfer tax savings can be considerable. So how much is the transfer tax? On commercial property in New York City, it's 2.625. It varies by county. Let me just add that both in the transfer tax and the mortgage tax arena, the taxing authorities are always on the lookout for so-called schemes to illegally reduce that burden. And somebody like Vince could add to this, while it is always important to try to be creative, to think outside the box, always be aware that the taxing authorities are on the lookout for transfer tax and mortgage tax avoiding schemes. And if you're audited, your transaction is audited, and they deem that what you did is a violation, you will get hit with significant penalties in addition to the tax burden being reinstated. Absolutely. One of the examples I gave earlier, that is when you have a mere change of formal identity of ownership or partial, I believe, Mario, there's a three-year look back in terms of uh, aggregating. So if you've tried to do this and play cute and they catch you, they can look back three years. And even though you might not have been part of one of those transactions in the previous three years, you were now the property owner, you're going to get zonked with the unpaid tax plus penalties and interest. And that could be very substantial. Yeah. So it's better to just pay the tax and move on and not try to get too creative because it could come back to bite you in the long run. Well, don't try to be cute. I mean, if you have a valid basis to claim an exemption, then you know there's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax avoidance is is legal, provided you're doing it correctly. Tax evasion gets you into trouble. And keep in mind that for the city of New York, mortgage tax and transfer tax represents billions of dollars in revenue each year. So it is not an insignificant amount. We could do a deep dive into each one of these items for sure. We've probably gone a little further on some of them than others, but certainly I think that at this point, our listeners know that there are a lot of questions they have to ask when they're getting ready to purchase or they're getting ready to sell commercial or residential multifamily real estate or even a single family home condo or co-op. These are things that you want to take into consideration in any transaction that involves the transfer of real estate property. Absolutely. Well, Realty Speak listeners, that's your full house and all we have time for today. Susan, Sherry, Mario, and Vin, that was exceptional. Thank you so much. How would all listeners reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Uh, how about the three of you at Horizon? Susan? Uh, they could reach me at my email address, which is Susan M at horizonlandservices.com. And Sherry? At szaret, Z-A-R-E-T, at horizonlandservices.com. Mario? They can reach me at mlan at horizonlandservices.com. mlan at horizonlandservices.com. And that's M-L-A-N. That's correct. 
And Vincent, to you at Morit Hawk and Hamroff. Yes, you can either get me at my direct dial at 212-486-4035 or by email at vballardi at morithock.com. Susan, tell us what the phone number is over at Horizon. That would be 212-921-4141. And then, of course, the .com on all their emails is their websites. And I'm going to put all this in the show notes, uh, Realty Speak listeners, so it'll be easy for you to uh, jot it down if you weren't able to do it while you were listening. Thank you all so much for being on Realty Speak today. Thanks, Bill. It was great fun. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much, Bill. That was great. Thanks, Bill. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Bill. That was great fun. I think your full house drew a royal flush tonight. Thanks a lot, Vin. And thanks again, Susan, Sherry, and Mario. There you have it. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music. Or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app like Podcast Republic my fave on Android devices or Overcast on Apple devices. To share with others, just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And now Realty Speak is also on Spotify. And of course, you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments, whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is billwidener.com and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.